Welcome to the Life Church Podcast. We're broadcasting from Coralville, Iowa. For more information about Life Church, to watch a live stream, or to find a campus near you, go to lifechurchnow.org. Well, we are, uh, we're going to be in a basically just a two-part kind of series I'm going to do this week and then in two weeks, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, some things as we gear up for Life on Mission. And today I want to talk about lost and found. You know, there's a thing that I do, it's an exercise that I engage in, and I, and I, don't, I don't think I do it like, it's not like I have to put it on my calendar, I, just, I think I just naturally just do this all the time, and that is to ask the question, why? Why? Maybe you've never thought about this, I'm sure you probably haven't, but I think about this, for example, is why does Life Church exist? Why does this church community exist? Why is it that we are on this, this valuable piece of commercial property here in Coralville? Why, why is that? You see, organizations that forget why they exist, it never goes well for them. It just, it goes downhill for them. For an example of that is Seiko watches. You know, if you're over 50, how many of you owned a Seiko watch at one point? Okay, all the, all the 50-year-olds and older did not raise their hand because they didn't want to confess that they were over 50. But Seiko watch, right? A Seiko watch used to be really popular, but then when the, uh, when the world started going digital, Seiko refused, they forgot they were a watchmaker, and they refused to make digital watches and basically lost about 75% of market share to Casio and Timex back in the 80s. And this happens to churches as well. Right? It's easy for us to get in the habit of basically doing the same thing Sunday after Sunday after Sunday after Sunday, and we forget why we're doing it. So why do we do what we do? There's a story in the Bible that we're going to look at that Jesus tells. I think it's probably one of the most important stories in the Bible. And for me, it kind of sums up why we do what we do. It's uh, Jesus has been doing ministry, and if you read the Gospels, you'll see that there's this tension that always exists in the Gospels, where Jesus is doing ministry, and there's like these religious leaders who are very knowledgeable in religion and faith and those kind of things, very knowledgeable, but they're always in, in sort of in tension with Jesus. There's always something going on between them, right? And one of the things that they did not like about Jesus was how he was doing ministry. He was constantly surrounded by, by tax collectors and prostitutes and very public sinners, and they thought that this is, for a rabbi, this is really a bad witness. This is a bad testimony to have, is that you're always surrounded by these very bad people. That's how they felt, right? And so in Jesus' day, there was basically two pre, pre, you know, predominant mindsets. The first mindset was, you are just the worst person in the world. You'll never be good enough, and you'll never make it into heaven. So there was many people who walked around with this very heavy guilt and weight of sin, and they just thought, I will never be good enough to get into heaven, and then there was another mindset that exists of people who thought, well, I'm pretty good. And those people that felt that they were pretty good oftentimes looked down on the ones who thought they'll never get into heaven. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to, next, those next couple of weeks, I want to talk about how both of these mindsets are wrong. You will never, ever be bad enough to stay away from God. You will never, ever be bad enough to stay away from God. And... You'll never ever be good enough to deserve to be with God. That's a tension that we live in, right? And it's coming to understand that tension 
is where we find true life and true freedom in Christ. Now, it's important to note that Jesus loved hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. <laughs> he did. Uh, maybe it's because they, they had the most to be forgiven. They were very grateful. And I get it. You know, I'd, I'd rather hang out with people that are very, that are very, very thankful and grateful that, that I saved them from their sin than to hang out with people who think, well, I really don't need you. <laughs> I don't, don't need, you don't really have anything to offer to me. I'd rather hang out with those other people, right? And so for those who really thought that they didn't really need Jesus, Jesus tells these stories found in Luke chapter 15. It's basically three stories consecutively, one, two, three. It's kind of like a bang, bang, bang. Jesus is trying to make a point. And I'm just going to talk about, real quickly about the first two and then really get into the third one. But the, the first one is a story of a woman who has 10 coins and she loses one of them. Okay? Now, most of us think, okay, if I had $10 and I lose a dollar, I'll look around for a dollar, but I'm not going to turn my house upside down for a dollar. Now, it might be different if it was, you know, $10 million and you lost whatever, 100000 Is that 10? No. Uh, $10 million. A million, you lost a million dollars, right? So that's okay, I'm not the only one. Wayne's the one that got up here and said you're asphalt. So I just like, just sort of. <laughs> he did say that. Anyways, uh, so, so you might not think it's a big deal, right? To lose one, but in the story, the way Jesus depicts the story is that this woman turns her house upside down to find that one coin. Upside down. And the point is, is that it's very, very important to find what is lost, find that lost coin. Then the next one is about a shepherd who has 100 sheep, and we sing a song around here about this, you know, he has 100 sheep, one gets lost, he leaves the 99 behind to find the one. It's very, very important that he finds that one sheep. And so Jesus wanted these self-righteous people to understand something, that that which is lost is important to God. And if you're here right now, and maybe in your own heart you feel lost, maybe you've been struggling with sin in your life, we're not here to condemn you, we're not here to beat you over the head, we just want you to know that God cares about you. In fact, if you walked into these doors, and in your mind you're saying to yourself, I'm lost, I don't feel close to God, I feel separated from God, you need to understand that God is thinking about you right now. And so Jesus tells this third story um, found in Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 20. <clears throat> he says, to illustrate the point further, so he's told these two stories, so now he's going to illustrate this point further. Um, Jesus told him this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings, moved to a distant land, and there he wasted oh, all his money in wild living. Keep that in mind. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him. But no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. 
and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me as your servant, as your hired servant. And so he returned home to his father. What I want to do is I want to ask us a couple of questions related to this story. And I think one of the most pertinent questions to ask related to this story for us is how are we like the prodigal? In which way are we like the prodigal? This prodigal son goes to his father and he asks for his inheritance. Now the custom was for the father to basically give the inheritance at a certain you know, predetermined time in his own mind. Like as he's, get, as he's getting close to the end of life, he would recognize that and he would call his sons in and he would basically distribute the inheritance to them. And so this audience knows that the story that Jesus is telling, I mean, this is a sign of great disrespect on the part of the son. Right? He's, he's asking for his inheritance. The father hasn't made a decision yet, but he's asking for his inheritance. It's, it's really important for us to understand the nature of this request. Okay? This, is not a, this is not the story of a young man who's out to appropriately, appropriately you know, assert his, his independence. Like you, know, you understand that when you have a teenager who's 16, 17, wants to drive the car. He's, it's appropriate that they want to do that. You've got to give them some boundaries. right? This is not that kind of story. This is a son who basically is saying to his father, I want what belongs to me, and I know I should get it later, but I want it now. Essentially, he's telling his dad, as I want to live as if you were dead right now. So how are we like the prodigal? Well, I think at times we live as if God is dead. We rebel against him. We take the good stuff that he gives us, not caring about how it feels to use him that way. We don't want God to tell us how to handle our, our money. We don't want God to tell us how to handle you know, our marriages, how to raise our kids. We don't want God to really interfere with our, our lives. We have an attitude towards God. Is a, the attitude that, towards God that we often have is just get lost, God. Leave me alone. Let me do my thing. And so in verse 13, it says this. He says, uh, he wasted all of his money in wild living. His father has spent a lifetime working hard and saving for this money. And then he just blows it on wild living. I mean, put yourself in the father's shoes. Think about how this father, in relation to the son, right? I mean, he, he already is insulted. I mean, it's already very disrespectful that the son has come to the father and said, hey, I want what's mine now. Essentially saying to the dad, I want to live as if you're already dead. That's already a bad, bad enough. And so the father gives him this, this money. And, you know, it would have been a different story if the son had taken that money and been responsible with it, invested it or something, you know, you know multiplied it, got a job or something like that. I mean, it might have even been okay if the son had lost it or it had even been stolen from him. But that's not what happens here. Instead, what the son does is that he squanders it on wild living. I mean, he not only broke his father's heart, but he broke their moral code. And so how are we like the son? Well, I think sometimes we just selfishly do whatever we feel like doing. And there's a big, there's a big push in that in our culture, right? You feel it, do it. You feel it, do it. And sometimes that's how we operate with God. Like, yeah, I know, I shouldn't probably move him with him, but come on. I know this business deal, I need to be honest with this business deal, but it's just a small white lie. I mean, it can't be that big of a deal. I know that God says this, 
But I want to do this. Too often that's how we live. And so this is what happens. We just do what feels good to us. We do what we think is our way and it's the right way. And so what happens to the son is that's what he does. And guess what happens to him? He ends up feeding pigs on a farm. Which, by the way, just so you know, in Jewish culture, it was probably the lowest profession you could possibly even think about. In fact, I'm sure as Jesus is telling the story and he says to them, this man is on this farm feeding pigs and even the food, the pig food was attractive to him. I'm sure that those people listening to, the religious people listening to were like, they were about to throw up. This was, this was disgusting for them. And so how are we like the sun? Well, I think sometimes we end up in the last place we thought we'd ever be. I don't know if this has happened to you. Maybe it has. Where you wake up one morning and you say, how did I get here? I remember 20 years ago, we, we committed ourselves to each other and now we're, we're divorced and things are just so bad. How did I get here? I mean, I know I started off right. I had all my morals straight. I knew I had this all going okay. I know it was, but how did I end up here? And the answer is often very simple. He said we ran away from God. It happens all the time. It's happened to me. I'm sure it's happened to some of you in this as well. So this is a story of the son that I think is really a story of many of us, right? Where we've done our own thing. We've run from God. Now we find ourselves asking us, find us wondering, asking ourselves the question, how did I get here? So if that's the story of the prodigal, then how, what, do, what do we learn about God in this story? What is it, you know, because the father is sort of the, the image of God. What do we learn about God in the story? Well, I think the first thing we learn is that he will allow us to leave, right? I remember when I was growing up, my father, my dad, you know, had him in my life till I was about 14. But my dad, you know, when I started mouthing off at him, my dad would say, you can finish this, the line if you want. He would say, hey, boy, I brought you into this world and, and I can take you out. <laughs> it's a... A great fatherly actions there. <laughs> uh, my dad actually sometimes did try to take me out. <laughs> but not this father. This father does something that is so remarkable. Why the, why the story is such a remarkable story. Why it's a story that needs to be told over and over again. You see, the stories in, in Luke 15, the first two, the one of the lost coin and the lost sheep, those people are doing exactly what anybody else would do. If you lose a coin, you're going to look for it. You're going to try to find it. If you, if you lose one of your sheep, you have 100 sheep and one gets lost, you're going to try to, you're going to do everything you can to find that sheep. But the father does something what no father would ever do. He gives his son the freedom to go. He lets him leave. And this is what we discover about God, is that God gives us freedom. Even when that freedom, even when he knows that that freedom's gonna result in heartache and brokenness and difficulty and challenge, he allows us to leave. So, this is what God is like. It's because he wants a relationship with you. Some of us, many of us in this room have this place where we have had the freedom. We ran 
And then we turned around, we came back home, and the, re- the kind of relationship that we have with God now as compared to what we had before is completely different. Because we learn what we learn, what this young man learns. See, we also learn about God is that he won't shield us from pain. I mean, how many of you are familiar with Calvin and Hobbes, the cartoon thing, right? I, yeah, yeah. You know, they're, they're not around anymore. I've got this little comic strip here. We, I was really into Calvin and Hobbes. I even bought the book, believe it or not. It's like a book that has all these multiple comic strips, you know. And so here's Calvin, and his nemesis is Susie, you know. And so he's, there's a snowball fight, and he throws one at Susie, and smack, it says smack. It actually hits her. And he's like, yes, right? And then this, like, angry Santa shows up. <laughs> like in his mind, you know, and it's just like conviction, right? And he feels bad, and so very, uh, you know, kind of like half-heartedly he says to Susie, I'm sorry, and then Susie responds, not as sorry as you're gonna be. Next scene, she pounces on him and ends up where Calvin's feet are sticking up out of the snow, and, and then this is what he says, I think as long as you suffer for your sins, they don't count. I think sometimes we feel that way, right? I mean, wouldn't a loving father shield us from the pain of, our mis- of the think- choices that we make? I think there's a tension that we often run in that because we, we, put on, we, we make decisions, we run from God, we suffer consequences, then we put it on God. Why did you allow this to happen? But God will allow it to happen. There's a reason why. See, a good father knows that sometimes a little bit of pig feeding is not a bad thing. It won't kill you. And does this mean that God doesn't love you, doesn't care? At times, he allows us to suffer the consequences of the choices that we make. I know that's been true for me. And so there might be some of you here right now that you've made some, some bad choices. And... Uh, and you're still reaping some of the consequences. And sometimes that's what happens, right? And so what does the son do as he's reaping these consequences? Here's what he does, he goes home. Verse 17 says, when he finally came to his senses, when he finally came to his senses, this idea of repentance, that's what the Bible really speaks about here, is I was going over here and then I realized this is a mistake and I turn around and I look in this direction. And so that idea of repentance is turning, turning away from the sin and turning towards God. In this case, turning away from the pig feeding towards home, his father's home. He's repenting. Today is the day to come to your senses. I don't know where you might be right now. I don't know if you're in a place where Uh, you walked in through these doors and you said to yourself, I don't know, I feel far from God. I've made way too many mistakes. I don't think God accepts me in. I want you to hear something. All you have to do is turn. Repent. We have people here who will pray for you. Prayer teams that will stand here with you and they'll pray with you. Um, you can take that connection card in front of you. You can fill it out and say, yeah, today I repent. Today I turn my life over to God. We'd love to walk that with you. Actually, you don't need the, the card or the prayer. I mean, we encourage you to do that, but you don't need All you have to do is make a decision today. Say, Jesus, I am so sorry for my sin. He always, always welcomes us home. In fact, that's what 
Luke 15, 20 through 24 says. He says, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Try to, try to get into the story a little bit. Imagine a son who has been feeding pigs. He probably stinks. He's skinny because he's hungry. He doesn't look like he used to look when he first left the home. He's a long way off. It says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But his father said to him, you're grounded. I'm so mad at you. That's not what the father said. Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf that, had been, that we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast for this son of mine, and I love this line, this son of mine was dead and now has returned to life. He was lost, but now he has been found. And so the party began. I love this imagery here. Jesus is, he's trying to shock his audience. He's trying to show to them the extent to which God will go after that which is lost. He paints this picture of this patriarch who, who runs to this son. Let me tell you something. In, in Middle Eastern culture, patriarchs don't run. Aristotle says it this way. He says, great men never run. Great men are run too. The only people in that, that culture who run are children or those who are desperate or those who are needy, those who are eager. Those are the only people that run. But here Jesus is painting a picture that there's this father who forgets all etiquette. He forgets about his dignity. And he's saying, this is what God is like. This is the father's heart for you. That even when you turn in his direction, when you repent, he will run after you. Then for what happens next, there's no words. I mean, father doesn't say anything at all. It says he just starts kissing his son. I'm sure he smelled. I'm sure of it. I mean, he's been feeding pigs. He's hungry. Nobody's giving him anything. I'm sure he smelled, but this father embraces him and starts kissing him. And the word there is katafileo, which is this word is love, kind of a love kiss. And it also it's in the present continuous, in the present tense, which means that it's continually happening. He just kisses him over and over and over and over and over and over again. This is the same son who knows how many years before said to his dad, I wish that you were dead. I wish you were not in my life anymore. That same son now, the father's just kissing him and kissing him and kissing him. And this is what, this is what Jesus is trying to say, that this is God's heart for you and me. I came across this story in uh, Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace. I want to end our time today by reading this story. It's kind of a long story, so just kind of listen along, try to get into the story, try to get a mental image of the story. But um, <clears throat> I, wanna, I wanted to do this because I think sometimes when we read stories uh, like the, the one in the, in the Bible, the Luke 15, we read that story, it's easy for us to, in our current time, detach ourselves from that story. Like we don't, 
we kind of like read it, like that's what the Bible says, but I don't know how it applies to me. I don't know how it relates to me. And so I thought, well, what better than to read a contemporary prodigal child story so you can see how this story actually does apply to us. A young girl grows up in a cherry orchard just above Traverse City, Michigan. Her parents are a bit old-fashioned. They tend to overreact to her nose ring, the music she listens to, the length of her skirts. They ground her a few times and she seethes on the inside. I hate you, she screams as the father goes and knocks on the door of her room after an argument. That night, she acts on a plan she has rehearsed over and over. She's gonna run away. She's visited Detroit only once before on a bus trip with her church youth group to watch the, the, the Tigers play. Because newspapers in Traverse City reported these lurid details of gangs and drugs and violence in downtown Detroit, she concludes that it's the last place her parents will actually look for her. Her second day there, she meets a man who drove the biggest car she'd ever seen. He offers her a ride, buys her lunch, gives her a place to stay, he gives her some pills that make her feel a little bit better and she's, than, than she's ever felt before, and she was right all along. I mean, she decides her parents were keeping her from all the fun. The good life continues for nearly a year. The man with a big car, she calls him boss, teaches her a few things. Since she's underage, men pay a premium for her. She lives in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants Occasionally, she thinks about the folks back home, but their lives now seem so boring, she can hardly believe she grew up there. She's, she has a brief scare when she sees her picture printed on the back of a milk carton. Have you seen this child, it says. But by now, she has blonde hair with all the makeup and body piercings. She, uh, nobody really would mistake her for being a child. After a year, the first signs of illness appear and it amazes her how fast the, bond, the boss turns mean. Before she knows it, she's out on the street without a penny to her name. She still turns a couple of tricks at night, but they don't pay much. All the money goes to support her habit. When winter blows in, she finds herself sleeping on metal grates outside the department stores. Sleeping is the wrong word. A teenage girl at night in downtown Detroit can never really relax her guard. So she has these dark man circles around her eyes. Her cough worsens. <clears throat> One night as she lies awake, listen, listening for footsteps, all of a sudden, everything about her life looks different. She no longer feels like a woman of the world. She feels like a little girl lost in a cold and frightening city. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty, and she's hungry, and she needs a fix. She pulls her legs tight underneath her and shivers under the newspaper she piled up on top of her coat. Something jolts a memory of a single image in her mind of May in Traverse City when a million cherry trees bloom all at once. And this is what she says to herself. God, why did I leave? God, why did I leave? She says to herself. Pain stabs her at her heart. My dog back home eats better than I do. She's sobbing and she knows in a flash that more than anything else in the world, she wants to go home. It's the cry of the human heart to go home. Three straight phone calls, three connections with the answer machine. She hangs up without leaving a message, the first two. But the third time she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm catching a bus up your way. 
and it will get there about midnight tomorrow. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. It takes about seven hours for a bus to make all the stops between Detroit and Traverse City. During that time, she realizes the flaws in her plan. What if her parents are out of town and they miss the message altogether? Should she have waited another day or so until she could talk to them in person? Even if they're home, they probably wrote her off as dead long ago. She should have given them some time to overcome the shock of, that, of her calling. Her thoughts bounce back and forth between those worries and the speech she's preparing for her father. Dad, I'm sorry. There are some of you in this room tonight, today, that need to say, Dad, I'm sorry. Dad, I'm sorry. I know I was wrong. It's not your fault. It's all mine. Dad, can you forgive me? She says the words over and over, her throat tightening even as she rehearses them. She hasn't apologized to anyone in years. When the bus finally rolls into the station, the driver announces in a crackly voice over the microphone, 15 minutes, folks. That's all we have here, 15 minutes. 15 minutes to decide her life. She checks herself in the compact mirror, smooths her, smooths her hair, and walks into the terminal, not knowing what to expect. Not one of, a th of the thousand scenes that have played out in her mind prepare her for what she sees next. There in the bus terminal in Traverse City, Michigan. Golly, I had a hard time for service. There, there in the bus ter terminal in Traverse City, Michigan, stands a group of 40 brothers and sisters and great aunts and uncles and cousins and grandmother and great-grandmother to boot. And they're all wearing goofy party hats and blowing noisemakers. And taped across the entire wall of the terminal is a computer-generated banner that reads, Welcome Home. Out of the crowd of well-wishers breaks her dad. She, she stares, tears quivering in her eyes like a hot mercury, and begins the memorized speech. Dad, I'm sorry. He interrupts her. Hush, child. We've got no time for that. No time for apologies. You'll be late for the party. A banquet is waiting for you at home. Jesus says that the heart of the Father for you, for whoever you are, whatever you've done, wherever you've been, it doesn't matter. The heart of the Father for you is welcome home. Here at Life Church, <clears throat> when you walk into our services, you, uh, you may miss it because maybe you're just used to it, but at the beginning of each service, on the back screen right here is a sign that says, Welcome Home. Because deep into the DNA of our church is we are a place for prodigals. We will always, always be here for the prodigal. And it starts with repentance, turning towards home. The Father will always, always welcome you home. I'm going to ask you to stand. Cedar Rapids, I'm going to ask you to stand as well. <clears throat> I don't know. I don't know how you walked into this building. I suspect that maybe some of you walked in and there's a little thought in your head that, gosh, 
I'm so far from God. I feel like I've missed it so many times. I've sinned over and over again. I just want you to know that we have prayer teams here, left and right. I'm asking you, don't leave this place without receiving prayer. Okay, if you're here, if you want to give your life to Jesus Christ for the very first time, or you want to recommit yourself to Christ again, because maybe last night you did something you wish you wouldn't have never done, today's the day to do it. Don't leave this place without saying that to God, without coming home to God. Amen? Amen. I'm going to pray for you. Our worship team is going to lead us in a, in a song of worship. And while they're leading us in a song of worship, that's your opportunity. That's your time to be able to step out of the, the chair where you're at and go meet, meet with our prayer team. They'd love to pray with you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just want to thank you, God, for your goodness, your grace, your loving kindness. I thank you, Father, that you are a, a God who welcomes us home. That we can pray, not God, but we pray, Father because you are really our dad, our daddy. Lord, we need you today. We need you to touch our hearts. We surrender to you, and we come home. In Jesus' name.